Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast, as I continue the second series, The Art of Living. And in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University and hand in hand, as always, with Iona, a digital technology company I established with colleagues to give the right information at the right time for patients. Today, I have a lovely colleague in studio with me whom I met through another colleague, Professor Luke Howard. He happens to be a cardiologist. He grew up in Malaysia and was lucky to win a scholarship to come to Cambridge University to study medicine and was awarded a double first class honours degree. Progressed on to do a PhD at St Mary's and specialised in syncope and has become a national and indeed I would say an international emerging figure in the field of syncope atrial fibrillation. He's published so many peer review papers, at least 100, and he mentors a number of other PhD students and presents all over the world. Not only that, he's set up a Stop Fainting website to help patients. He's also published a book called Keeping Your Heart Healthy, which was recently published by Penguin, and I've read it and I can certainly give it a shout out. It was really, really, really interesting read. Very simple, very relatable, and I've already recommended it to a number of patients and close family members. But this gentleman doesn't stop there. He's also an innovator, not just in his research, but in his approach to life. And also he facilitates other people in their innovations, investing and introducing new ideas and concepts in the digital healthcare world to me and to many of my colleagues. So join me in a very warm welcome to Dr. Boone Lim. Boone, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to your uh, show. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And I can't wait to have this conversation. And um, we've had so many conversations early on a Sunday morning, late on a Saturday night and during the week about different things to do with life. And I feel like I've got to know you quite well over the last um, number of months. But I thought one of the stories that we spoke about when we were preparing for this podcast was was very telling about the man that you really are. And that was, you know, your background growing up in Malaysia and who the inspirational figures or figure may have been to start your journey in medicine. And I was wondering if we could start off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was born in 1975 um, and I to this day, count my blessings to the family that chose me to be born into. My mother was eternally nurturing. She had a wonderful voice, which to this day, she uses to sing to me over the uh, WhatsApp calls that we have sometimes on the weekend. Uh, and she's learning to play the ukulele now after her retirement as a long-standing school teacher. So my father has always had a fire in his belly and a lot of gumption and the tenacity to grab life by the horns, grab the bull of life by the horns and, and really push forward. And he was a man who I would say more than anyone has shaped who I have become today. A wonderful, caring, loving man with to this day the hottest temper that I know of anyone that I've known. And I know a lot of people here in, in the uh, community that I work in who have hot tempers, but none will beat my father. And this is something that I'm very proud of because I can handle heat and I can handle people. Uh, and I've learned that from my father. Now, of late, very interestingly, my two younger brothers, who in my mind are my kindred spirits, have shown me way more of life and the 
many facets of life that I have neglected throughout my, I would say, traditional or classical education. And perhaps we can talk about more about that later. But this is how I grew up in a blessed family. Yeah, well, we'll definitely come back to that later, which is part of your transformational journey. But I always think it's easier for the listener to understand how a transformation occurs if you can understand the root of it. And and you growing up in um, KL back in the, was it the 70s? And yeah. how did you get from there to Cambridge? So, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, story. I, I'm the first doctor in my family. My family come from a very modest background in a district in Malaysia, just outside of Kuala Lumpur. I went to a local secondary school and did my whole higher education in Bahasa, which is the Malay language, um, although I spoke English at home. My father went through a tough time in the 1987-88 economic crisis. I remember at one stage he lost his car. And if you've ever been to Malaysia or in the tropics, it's 33 degrees all year round. And you just have to step out and walk for five minutes and you'll be drenched in sweat. And that was my father drenched in sweat, walking to his office every day and walking back. And this journey of his, together with the tension that clearly came with the uh, tension of his own job with incipient failure, uh, with trying to keep things together, uh, is what really defined the level of industry and fortitude and resilience that one needs to have to succeed in life. And my dad had a very interesting saying that it's a dog-eat-dog world. And in time that has passed and my own feeling about how the world has changed, I moved on from that viewpoint. But it came to define a lot of how my behavior was at, at that time to always strive to be the best to succeed because that was the only way you were going to survive. And that was the only way certainly my father survived. You did more than survive. I mean, yes, you it was a dog-eat-dog -dog environment and the poor economic climate, but that almost drove you to want to escape it. And, and you looked across the pond, didn't you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I've always been interested in physics. It was my best subject together with mathematics in school. And so when I read A Brief History of Time, I was utterly inspired by Stephen Hawking. And lo and behold, he came to visit Malaysia. Really? In the, uh, yeah, in 1994. I remember he, he came to uh, one of the main halls in Malaysia where we uh, put on a reception and he gave a lecture. And he said something that I disagreed with. He said that computer viruses are living things because they fulfill all the criteria because they, um, although they don't have a metabolism of their own, they, they cannibalize or they control the metabolism of the computers to produce more viruses and therefore it defines it as a living thing. And this was fairly controversial at the time. Did you critique him during his lecture or did you just quietly think it? No, no, I quietly thought that, but the, the lecture didn't really have many questions asked afterwards. It was um, uh, almost like a monologue, but it was very interesting to see him and how he could deliver his speech so quickly. The interesting story is that I think because of Stephen Hawking, I made my way to Cambridge because the very next year I was starting my first year at Gonville and Keys. And the story to this was at my interview, which was purely by chance. And this is one of those sliding doors moment. You know, sliding doors is a show with... Oh, I love um, it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a moment in time passes and you Gwyneth can choose Paltrow, one... right? That's right. That's right. One or the second step. 
and it defines you and your path forevermore. And so the step for me was meeting or, or going to Stephen Hawking's lecture and actually then applying for the Cambridge and having the director of studies at the time, a chap called Richard LePage, who was flying to Singapore to interview five candidates from Singapore. And I submitted my application and he said, uh, okay, I'll stop by in Kuala Lumpur and I'll see you in a hotel to interview you. And during this interview, we talked about Stephen Hawking because clearly Stephen Hawking was a professor at Gonville and Keyes, the professor in mathematics in Gonville and Keyes where I was studying at the time. And so it just became a, a, a matter of uh, interest during our, our interview. And, and I still believe that is how I got into Cambridge, uh, i.e. the ability to, to reflect and to comment and to challenge Stephen Hawking's own view on computer viruses being considered a living organism, which I disagreed with. Well, that's a small world, particularly since this podcast is in collaboration with Homerton Changemakers. And he was a real changemaker, wasn't he? A very inspirational man. And actually, another gentleman I interviewed, Dan White, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, was commissioned by Gonville and Keyes to do a book on Gonville. And he did one of the most famous portraits of Stephen. So there's quite a lot of connection between our little triangle here with that. Wonderful, wonderful. And, you know, I've met Stephen Hawking twice. Uh, He doesn't come to the quadrangle very much or to dine in the hall. But on the one time I did kind of get close to him, I could see how he was manipulating the uh, tech synthesizer. And he was quick. Boy, was he quick. And I guess there's another interesting story, which is the first day that I got into Cambridge, I I needed to set up a bank account. And I was queuing at Barclays Bank by the Market Square. And and lo and behold, in front of me was was a lady who turned around with the nicest smile and said to me, "Uh, you look new here, can I help you? And I just told her that I was a student. I had just arrived in England for the first time in my life. And I was going to set up a bank account and she got talking with me and asked me where I was going. And I said, Keys. And she said, oh, yeah, my husband's a professor at Keys. And I said, who's your husband? And when she said Stephen Hawking, my jaw dropped <laughs> because <laughs> wow. I had met Elaine Mason, who, who incidentally just got married uh, as his second wife on that very first day in September whilst I was queuing at Barclays. What a story. Wow. What was she like? Was she a nice lady? Beautiful lady. Very gracious and actually so kind to reach out to me. Can Can you imagine standing in the queue today and having the person in front of you just saying, hello, how are you? How can I help? Or, you know, just being nice and friendly. And, and that was that was Elaine Mason. Wow. One of the simplest ways of bringing wellness to people. And of course, you and your job as a cardiologist, it's your it's your job to bring wellness to people every day when they come in and they're complaining of chest pain or um, fast beats in the heart. And how do you try and impart wellness to your patients? That is a really interesting question, which has so many different answers. Because if you asked me the question 10 years ago, I had a very different approach. The traditional training of medicine teaches you to be very, I guess, reductionist. And uh, your training might be very focused on trying to get the right diagnosis, the right medication, the right treatment started, and trying to practice a medicine that doesn't make any mistakes. 
Now, you know, of late, the gentle and coming back to the smile that, that Stephen Hawking's wife gave me and really put me at ease, that initial kind of handshake, not in the COVID era, but that initial greeting and that warmth and that ability to look in the patient's eyes rather than your PC screen is what I think defines the start of a good consultation. And that that is how I've started to maintain and continue with my consultations off late uh, because there has been a great change and shift. And with with a bit of confidence in also knowing more about the subject that I that I'm working in, I have released that that kind of need to always be a diagnostician with a very reductionist approach and actually dive down into the potential other aspects of the patient's health and well-being, which includes more than just the physical diagnosis they've come to see me with. Mm. I, I completely agree with that. But isn't it very hard in the clinic? You know, we're faced with all sorts of computer programs. We're all innovating around this. We're glued to our pres- com- computer screen. We have short amount of time and the patient wants an answer at the end of the day. So I don't know what you feel the answer is, but, you know, having a bit more time is quite good. And also, you know, maybe having f- more consultations. And I saw that you've been disrupting this in your practice rather than the traditional model of see the patient once, then follow up. You kind of build a relationship, almost like we do in rheumatology with chronic diseases. We build a relationship and and wellness should be a chronic good problem rather than a bad problem. Yeah. And I, I suspect the relationship will really have to start. And this is my kind of vision of change with the creation of stopfainting.com. Uh, which is my kind of specialist subject because I run one of the largest syncope units in uh, London. And the ability to communicate this information, for example, on a website, in a webinar, in a very personal webinar where we have patients speaking with me who agree to be filmed. And we have uh, a colleague, Dr. Mel Danny, who's fantastic, who interviews me typically on a Sunday morning at 7.30 every Sunday we put up these webinars online and more and more I'm heading towards a process where the education and understanding of patients' illness comes from delivery of a pre-clinic viewing, uh, if you like, or reading of the web- website or webinar. Mm. I really do feel that this uh, kind of adjunctive way to educate patients is a very, very strong way to enhance the clinical environment because when we get a clinic referral from a GP, we often know what the GP is thinking because the GP will say something like, this patient fainted three times on sight of blood, and we already know what the diagnosis is. Now, it may be that the management plan is not very clear to the GP or the referring consultant, but we already have a very clear idea about what the management plan should be. And, and with syncope in particular, but I will extend further later on to perhaps describe all potential cardiovascular disease in particular. The patient understanding and education piece is a critical piece to empower and engender better health care. Mm. But I want to pick you up on that concept of 
you know, we already know the diagnosis and we can manage it. I mean, yes, we have a protocol for that, but that the diagnosis is not necessarily the same thing as the cause, the root cause. And I find that my patients, yes, they'll come with a sore finger or a sore toe and eventually you'll figure out the diagnosis through a sequence of investigations, listening, treatment modalities. But actually the cause might be, you know, a family incident, um, a change in work-life balance, a bereavement, uh, you know, this almost yearning to change something in their life. And I think this is what you're articulating there, that the patient is on a journey. It's not just about the symptom or the problem. It's about the underlying lifestyle that they have. Yeah. So in, in my book, Keeping Your Heart Healthy, as as you mentioned, one of the most interesting chapters that I had to research was the chapter on stress and the impact of stress on heart health. We clearly know about some very dramatic stress phenomena, such as Takusubo's cardiomyopathy, which is a form of uh, heart muscle disorder that occurs that occurs acutely with stress. So, for example, a bereavement or an acute loss of a job or career can lead to the heart's pump function acutely deteriorating within a span of hours and sometimes with a troponin rise and chest pain to fit. And so this is the immediate emotional impact clearly manifests with an echocardiogram and with blood markers on the heart. And, you know, that is a very powerful story to tell because the lesser emotions, i.e. not an acute bereavement, but a more chronic state of affairs, which is what we live in typically in Western society, day to day, is akin to not the saber-toothed tiger pouncing at you because that's easy. That's an acute stress you deal with or you're dead, right? You either fight the, the, the cat, you fight it away, or you lose your life, or you flee and you successfully flee, so the stress is over. But what this is akin to in modern-day living is actually you in the Saharan long grass, and actually the, the, the cat or the lion around you circling in that long grass, but playing with you and not really pouncing. And this circling scenario 24 hours a day with your mobile phone ready to pounce with a ping from your boss or an email with things that you need to do but haven't done and a job list and career fears and you know challenges with COVID and lockdown. These are things that, that cause a very, very chronic stress to develop. And the impact of that is what I'm seeing a lot of recently, not only with COVID, but with other forms of chronic stress that were here even before COVID started. And the impact of that on the major cardiovascular diseases is significant, more and more so because it drives problems with eating, for example, and the kind of flight to foods which are very comforting, which then lead to obesity and insulin resistance and diabetes, and also hypertension, probably also caused by excessive drinking. These are all factors that will eventually hit hard on the cardiovascular state. But you're right. If you ask the right question and you get to the fundamental root cause of patient's illness, it's often found outside of the the thing that you're dealing with. So in your case, you gave an example of a toe or a finger, in my case, hypertension or diabetes, but you, you peel it back, you peel back the layers, you often find something that you can talk about to really make that large impact on the patient. 
And of course, what we're doing here in this conversation is peeling back the layers on you. I mean, Boone, I said in the introduction, you've um, authored 100 peer review papers. Now, that's very, very different from authoring a mainstream, popular go-to book on how to heal and keep your heart healthy. Now, there must have been a paradigm shift in your own life or there must have been some influencing moment. Maybe it was a patient, maybe it was another sliding doors moment to to use your um, terminology that made you kind of start a shift, not moving away from academia, but just thinking about the world of medicine through a different lens. What was that moment? Was it a patient? Is a combination of a patient and my brother. I said at the start that I'm blessed to have two younger brothers, but who are way wiser than me, uh, although they're younger. And one of my brothers, his name is Jin, came to visit me. And as he visited, he had glanced on a piece that was given to me, an art painting that was given to me on canvas. Uh, it was an eight-foot-long piece uh, by Sunda Walker. And you know Sunda, right? You've interviewed her. I've interviewed her. Oh, my God, what an amazing lady. And actually, we talked about you on the interview. How funny is that? Amazing. I mean, she is one of the most gracious and compassionate beings that I've ever come across. The hospital where I work is is full of her paintings that she's donated. And in the ECG department, there's a beautiful large painting of farmers in a rice paddy field. Yeah, you know, she told me that she had painted and is writing a book on her vision of the world without illness. Now, it was quite inspiring because she mapped out her vision, not having the medical education as some of the people I've interviewed. And literally the next week I had Professor Tim Spector, who through his join Zoe was mapping out the same vision from a scientific perspective. But she had envisioned this and is trying to manifest it. So clearly there's some element of art, science and manifestation, you know, coming to bear in all of this in your own transformative journey here. Well, and you're very much part of it, right? Because the, the story you've just given there is wonderful. It's called serendipity. And, and actually to have such things occurring is no coincidence. And the, 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 the story, if, if I continue now, is Jin, my brother, visited me, saw this painting and said to me immediately, Sunda is a magician, and she's imbued in this painting a protective series of images which are hidden within the mountain. And so I will send you a copy of this painting if you want to put it on your website so that you can yes, show please. people who, who want to watch. But you can pick out the features on the painting. Perhaps I won't say it now, but my brother picked them all out and said to me furthermore, because I had just moved into a new house, he said, look, this this lady clearly has an ability with art and to imbue the art with protection. And he told me what those different layers in the painting were, which I hadn't seen when I saw the painting on so many occasions. And he said to me, Boone, you need to get Sunda to try and draw you or paint you a protection painting for your new house. And I don't know why he said that. He just felt compelled to say it. And very shortly after, he was on a dining table and he said, boom, boom, quickly, bring me a piece of paper. Now, 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 it's coming. And i tell you something about my brother. He has something very special in his visions. And I brought him the first thing I could find, which was a mathematics scrapbook that my son had left lying about. I tore off a page and he drew for me a picture of a double 
cylinder or, or, or a circle within a circle together with what I thought were petals from a rose or, or from a plant or leaves right in the middle of the circle. And I said, look, this is what Sundar will draw for you. You just have to ask her. And I said, no. I mean, he's, he's telling me there and then that Sundar will say yes, first of all, to draw me a protective painting. Secondly, that this is what she'll draw. And, and so I just kept that picture that he drew with, with pencil aside. And I then texted Sunda. I reached out to her and said to her, would she mind drawing me a protective painting? I didn't say anything else but the word protection. And Sunda was so kind and gracious and did eventually send me a protection painting two and a half months later. And I'll send you a picture of this as well. And, you know, she called it the Euroboros and the Sacred Lotus. And the Euroboro is actually a symbol which is ancient, permeating the cultures of ancient Egypt, Hindu and Norse mythology and Renaissance alchemy, which essentially is a concept that encapsulates the eternity of life or time. And so time going in a revolution rather than in linear time. And this is what look almost exactly like what my brother drew two months prior to even the conception of this painting. Now, there's an Arthur C. Clarke statement, the science fiction writer, which is his third law, which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And coming back to your point about having two interviews back to back, with two visions of changing the world or improving the world from Sunda and then from Tim Spector. I think we're caught in this, in this very, very advanced technology that we don't understand, but which I acknowledge because it's part of my life. Jin, my brother, is part of my life, and that's not the only thing that he's demonstrated to me. That's one of many, many things that I've been blessed with in terms of my experience. But could I could I challenge you? I mean, I think this is quite a story and I have no doubt that this happened. But are there standard protective images? So it might be by chance that your brother could have picked an image. This is for the cynics that might be listening now, Boone. I'm going to challenge you on this, that it might be by chance that a, there's a standard, you know, assets of protective imagery. And it was just by chance that Sunder picked, you know, a standard image, as did your brother, Jin. Or do you think it really was serendipity? No, I mean, I, I don't particularly think, because since then I've read a bit more about the Euroboros and what the meaning of. And truly the meaning is not really imbuing protection, but more of a concept of eternal time or time going around in a revolution. Mm. So I don't consider that very, very protective. It's more conceptual. It's more mm. philosophy. Mm. And it's, it's something that, interestingly, has been seen in so many independent ancient cultures, which have this concept of a serpent swallowing a tail, of another serpent that's swallowing its tail. That is the standard uh, drawing that one might get. But in other cultures, you could see, in fact, M.C. Escher drew a painting of a, of a hand painting another hand, which was painting itself. So this concept of things creating itself and ending, life and death, the cycle of life is encapsulated by this this kind of symbol. 
Well, it sounds like there's certainly magic floating around and it has been transforming how you think, how you approach medicine, the world and life. And if I were to give you a magic wand, OK, let's just put our imagination hats on and said, OK, Boone, you know, you've heard Sundar. She's written her book and she's imagined the world without disease. You've heard it from the scientific perspective with Tim. Now, what would you do if you had a blank canvas? How would your world be? And what would, If you were given a magic wand, what would you use it to do? So I would shake the magic wand and remove ourselves from the shackles of our traditional way of thinking. Because I think as useful and as as helpful as the traditional kind of path that I took with a Cambridge education and kind of top training centers, my approach now to my patients, which is so fulfilling for me, and I would say for my patients as well, has taken on a slightly different path. There is a place for knowledge and science, definitely. And I think you cannot practice as a healer or physician without understanding what you need to understand about being having a good diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis, and having the treatment plan. But as you said earlier on, trying to understand those facets or the influences that come into the disease to, to cause the disease to manifest, first of all, is what I'm really trying to get at. Because that is a really fascinating bit of undiscovered science. I think with my background in autonomic nerve system research and understanding a bit more about the physiology, that there is a link or a bridge. And this bridge could be Something like this. There's a higher brain and there's a primitive brain, the autonomic nerve system. And whenever we disconnect the brain because we're so caught up in our day-to-day -day life and just focus on the higher brain development, higher brain thinking, cognition, and education, we lose sight of what our bodies intrinsically can tell us to do. For example, when it's time to sleep, we should sleep. And if you said, what top three tips should I give patients who are trying to navigate their chronic illness? I would say, think about how the world around you is influencing how you react, how you behave, how you sleep, how you eat, and recognize that these simple things in life that we take so much for granted are going to be some of the most fundamental drivers of, of illness, especially when when we get that wrong. So I think sleep is key, getting enough sleep, getting enough rest, and getting breathing right. And it's, a, it's another aspect that I feel strongly about. And I know that Sunda meditates with breath work as well for an hour every morning. I can't do as much as that, but I do it for 10 minutes every morning and 10 minutes before I sleep. And it's in this moment of quiet reflection an expression of gratitude and compassion as I breathe from my diaphragm or belly breathing is when some of the most inspirational ideas pop into my mind. And, you know, I think there is a inner intelligence, I guess, if you allow it to show, rather than checking your emails first thing or rushing off to do your morning routine, having some time for me or having some downtime where you allow yourself to listen quietly is, is one of the things that I would urge everyone to do. 
Mm. And I think there's a message for all of us here. I mean, you've you've clearly outlined from coming from a position of academic strength, intelligence, achievements, and track record as a senior, serious clinician scientist, you have now reflected back on life, your life experiences, and the way you live your life now, I would say has transformed. And there are messages about sleep and eat and, and slowing down that potentially have come forth from the pandemic. And I think the way the world of the future is going to be a slightly different one, and we all have to embrace doing things differently. But I must say that I can see now why when I spoke to you during the week, you told me when I asked you how you were, you said you're living the dream now. Life is kind. I continue to show gratitude around me. I'm busy as hell, but I've made a few connections. I understand Dr. Boon Lim a little bit better. And I must say, if we could all adopt a little bit of the art of Dr. Boon Lim, we'd probably all feel a lot better. So thank you so much, Boon, for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. You're very welcome. What a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you, Millie. Thank you so much. And thank you to my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that. And please do reach out for Boone's book, Keeping Your Heart Healthy. He touched on a few aspects, but there's so many rich messages in that book. Such an easy, simple read. Um, and it's available from Penguin on Amazon for no more than £9.99, the best £10 you'll ever spend. And join me next week when I'll be interviewing um, Dr. Cassandra Coburn, who's the senior editor of The Lancet Longevity. And she has written a book called Enough. And it's about the planetary diet and how embracing what's good for the planet will be good for our bodies. So continuing this theme on how we nourish ourselves and nourish our world for the future to come. And if you do want to leave any feedback, please feel free to do so at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for now.